We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. I recognise a history of truth which acknowledges the impacts of invasion and colonisation on Aboriginal people, resulting in the forcible removal from their lands. I stand for a future that profoundly respects and acknowledges Aboriginal perspectives, culture, language and history, and a continued effort to fight for Aboriginal justice, paving the way for a stronger future. G'day, it's Dr Carl here, and it won't come as any surprise to you that I was a bit of a curious kid. I was always asking my parents questions like, why do people think that the earth is flat, and how can flies walk on the ceiling? Only by asking questions, by being curious, only that way can we get answers which then give us knowledge. Find your answers during National Science Week at scienceweek.net.au. Hello and welcome to Working on Water, a collaborative project between That's What I Call Science and the Royal Society of Tasmania. We'll be interviewing four women in marine science. My name is Kate Johnson and I'm joined today by Megan Hartog. <laughs> She's a Voyage Operations Manager working at the CSIRO Marine National Facility. She organises research voyages on the research vessel The Investigator, which I'm sure a lot of us have seen docked at the Hobart waterfront. Now Megan, before we launch into all the ins and outs of what you do as part of your role as a Voyage Operations Manager, we'd really like to know a little bit about you. So would you mind starting yourself with what really sparked your interest in marine science? Sure, yep. Um, I think it, it was sparked at quite a young age. Um, I think from really early on, everything under the water seemed so much more fascinating to me than anything on land. Um, and I think that came through a lot of time spent on the water with my family and um, I did my dive course at quite a young age and so did a lot of diving and fishing with my family and with my dad. and that really opened up a whole new world for me. So um, from that early age, I knew I wanted to explore that world. And um, yeah, I really felt already from primary school that I wanted to be a marine scientist. So it was definitely my, my passion and ambition. Oh, that's really lovely. And what about now, in, in your role now, what do you really enjoy about working in marine science? Um, I enjoy my role now in that I get to still interact with researchers and I get to uh, be on the, the cutting edge of research, but more from a different vantage point. So as a technician, mm. so more see the, the behind the scenes aspect. And I really enjoy that in that I get exposure to a whole range of different fields and different people, um, but I get to see the behind the scenes part of it. And I find that really rewarding. And so as a technician, what does that, what do you mean by the different perspective? What do, how do you think your perspective is different to perhaps someone doing research in science? Yeah, I think it's, um, we're a bit more of a generalist and probably a, a dedicated researcher. So we work across a whole range of different scientific fields. So on board the ship, there's geoscientists and oceanographers and atmospheric scientists and a whole range of people. But 
our job is the same, and that's to help them get their science on the ship, um, help them to get the most of the time out of the ship, um, and just, yeah, make sure everything comes together at the end of the day so that they can go out and do, do their work, which is, um, yeah, a different perspective in that we deal more with the planning and the administration, but still get to be involved with that research as well. That's really awesome. It's a really important job that helps facilitate everyone else's job. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, so having an interest in marine science that you've had ever since childhood, I wonder if you have a favourite marine organism or a favourite marine ecosystem you might like to tell mm. us about? Oh, that's a tough one. I feel like it changes. I feel like every year it's probably different. Um, I think early on, like a lot of people, I loved manta rays and I loved turtles and everything. But I think as I went on in my career and I learnt more about different ecosystems, I started to learn that sometimes the less glamorous ones were more important or, yeah, had a, a special kind of value. So um, I remember I did a lot of work with salt marshes mm. in my previous job and became really passionate about salt marshes. They don't look like much and, um, yeah, they can be a bit muddy and stinky, but when you have that different level of understanding about their importance, I think you really grow to value value them. So yeah, that's a bit of a strange one, but every year it changes, I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that, that idea that those sorts of ecosystems, they underpin, um, you know, the lives of all those perhaps yeah. more traditionally charismatic creatures. Like yeah, Manta the Rays. pretty exciting things. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. G'day, this is Steve Liddell from Street Science, and I love to blow things up. I'm not talking about balloons. Finding out how stuff interacts is one of the many fun things about science, whether it's making slime, some hot ice, or even launching a rocket. With science, there's no limits. You can learn, create, and experiment anywhere you like. Wherever you might be, National Science Week has something for you. Find out how you can get involved at scienceweek.net.au. And so you did a bit of work, I think maybe for your honours project on soft corals. Did you yeah, have that? Yeah, I you just did. Tell I us did. A about that? Yeah. So a lot of people probably wouldn't be aware, but um, in the Tamer Estuary up in Launceston, toward the the lower estuary past Beauty Point, there's actually some really um, diverse rocky reef communities, and part of my study was to go out and actually investigate those because people don't know about them and people have never really actually gone and had a look what's there. So the Tamar gets a really bad rap for being dirty and muddy, but we were looking at a totally different part of the Tamar and trying to just shed a bit of light on those communities. And part of that, we went down and we took photos and we took samples and just tried to understand what was there. Um, and in doing so, we discovered some species that have never been described before, we believe. So, um, yeah, that was a really exciting project and I guess it gave people a, um, a different perspective on the estuary and probably a, a different appreciation of the more beautiful aspect of the estuary. Yeah, totally. Oh, that's really, that's really, really interesting because, yeah, I think the Tamar is traditionally sort of portrayed as, it's not somewhere where you'd think there'd be a really beautiful no. ecosystem, I guess, so close to town. But yeah, yeah, that's, that's it, right on the doorstep. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. And since you've worked in marine science, you've worked in lots of different roles, lots of different capacities. I wonder if maybe there's been a moment where you've had a thought or maybe a realisation about yourself or your role as a marine scientist or marine science in general that's really impacted you that you might like to tell us about? Ooh, um, I think, yeah, a lot of it 
It's probably just been realising how in interconnected everything is. And I think maybe starting off in marine science, I was quite focused on the organisms. I found them really interesting and beautiful and um, the ecosystems. But then I realised that humans are part of that ecosystem too. And I think the human element I've really enjoyed, just the, the people you get to meet and interact with as part of my work and especially field work. Um, so I've actually realised that, yeah, I, I love nature and I love um, organisms, but I really have enjoyed the, the people side of things a lot more than I anticipated, I think, which has been interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting, I suppose. Mm. No matter what you do, you're working with people. Yeah, you can't um, avoid it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. So with that honours work you did where you were discovering new species in the Tamar estuary, can you tell us a little bit about that feeling when you see something no one else has seen before? How does, how yeah, does that feel? I think it was a slow realisation because it came through a lot mm. of hours in the lab, a lot of looking at photographs and DNA and everything else. And so I think it wasn't a big bombshell moment. It was more a slow, oh, hang on, this is this is something new and this is something unique and this deserves to be explored further. Um, so yeah, it was more just a, a slow process of a lot of hard work, a lot of lab hours. Um, and then at the end, yeah, having that kind of confirmation, yeah, this is most likely a new, a new species, which is really exciting and um, yeah, people love discoveries, but in some ways it's not surprising as well because no one's looked in the Tamar before. So. Um, if you haven't looked, then of course you, there's going to be unknown things there. So mm. it is exciting and surprising, but in some ways not as well, because um, yep. it really was the first study of these communities. Yeah, yeah. that's really interesting because you think of science, you think of that um, sort of stock image idea of a eureka moment, yes. and it's it's not often like that. No. It's a yeah, a lot of work that combination goes into of it. hard work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, thank you so much. Yeah. So Megan, you organise voyages on a research vessel called the Investigator. Where does this um, boat actually go? Um, it goes all over, to be honest. It covers all of Australia's marine estate. So that could be anywhere up in the tropics, around Darwin or Broome, um, right down to the Antarctic Ice Edge. So really, yeah, all over Australia's um, marine estate. And it's really the only dedicated Australian research vessel that covers that entire area. Wow. So often during a year we'll spend the summer down in the Southern Ocean, um, the mm. weather's a bit kinder then. And then, um, yeah, the past couple of years we've done almost a complete circumnavigation through the winter months. So, oh, yeah, awesome. everywhere. <laughs> no, that's really cool. Because I always imagine those ships um, just going to sort of the Antarctic. I suppose that's what yeah. you see the images of. That's yeah. really interesting because all around Australia. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So what sort of information do people collect on these voyages? Well, um, it covers every discipline really. So we have geoscience voyages and I went on one last year where they're dredging up rocks from seamounts and dating mm. the rocks. Uh, we have atmospheric voyages where they're measuring yeah, atmospheric properties. We've got biological voyages where they're trawling for fish or other species, mapping voyages. Um, it really covers a whole range of different um, disciplines and some voyage could have multiple projects so different projects looking at completely different things um, it's just trying to get as much science on the ship as possible 
Oh, cool. So yeah. you've been on some of these voyages? Yeah. Yep. yep. We occasionally go on board in a, um, a support role on board as a voyage manager. So we normally go on between about two or three voyages a year on average on board. And that's the best bit of the job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, it would be. And when you're on board and you're helping as a voyage operations manager, what sort of things are you doing? Um, it's mainly around just being that, that point of contact for both the science party and the crew and working with both parties and with the support staff on board just to make sure everyone's happy and supported. Um, often you have to make a few planning decisions kind of on the fly if the weather's bad or a bit of equipment breaks down. So it's really providing mm. that support and that, um, I guess, connection with the land-based support as well on board for people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And how long are the voyages usually? They, they range. So mm. they're up to 60 days in duration. That's the maximum um, length of voyages, but they could be, you know, we've got one heading out soon that's 10 days. So yeah. a whole range, everything in between that. Oh, that's really interesting. Whether you live near the coast or inland, the world's oceans still produce some of your food and influence your weather. I'm Professor Emma Johnston, and as a marine ecologist, I study how the oceans and humans interact. It's like working in a giant underwater science lab. This National Science Week, discover more about the fascinating world around us by diving into one of hundreds of online events at scienceweek.net.au. Um, so there must be lots of things that you have to consider in the planning stage, so before the trip actually starts. Yeah. Um, what sort of things would you find yourself doing a, on a typical day when you're in the process of planning a in voyage? Planning, oh, it really, it shifts throughout the process. So we start working with the scientists about 12 months out from a voyage to start mm -hmm. planning. And then for a full year, we're working with them on a whole range of different things. So we develop a voyage plan, which outlines everything they plan to do on the voyage. We get participants ready, so if they need to get their medicals done or paperwork done. Um, we make sure all the equipment's ready, so we get a big equipment list and we make sure it's all serviced and up to date. Um, we might apply for permits to actually do the work in different mm -hmm. areas. So yeah, a whole bunch of different tasks in the lead up to, and it, it varies a little bit voyage to voyage as well, depending on what they're actually working on. Mm. With all those considerations, all those different aspects, you know, you're working with people, you're working with equipment, working with a big boat that could, I don't know, run into things. <laughs> what are some things that you have to consider in your job when you're planning or when you're on the ship that people might not necessarily think of first when they think of what Ooh. you do? Um, yeah, I guess it's, it's all the behind the scenes things. So we've got to get equipment potentially from the whole way around the globe yeah. here in Hobart. We've got to get people the whole way around the globe here mm -hmm. in Hobart, all on the right schedule, um, mm -hmm. ready for the voyage. Yeah, in terms of what people might not think about, um, yeah, I, I think it's just the complexity of the operations. Um, yep. Yeah, especially for some voyages where there's multiple projects, up to 60 people on board the ship, um, lots of different bits of equipment, just trying to make it, it's all like different pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, just trying to make it all fit together. It's the best way to describe it, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. That sounds extremely complex. <laughs> <laughs> and when you are um, on one of these voyages, I guess because there are so many aspects going on, 
Um, I'm just wondering if there's a situation where you've been on a voyage or you've planned a voyage where something has maybe gone wrong that you might want to tell us about? Nothing overly disastrous, which is good. good. That's really Uh, good. (laughs) I think it's probably safe to say things go wrong on every voyage, but by wrong it's more just unexpected Mm -hmm. um, and often it just means thinking outside the box or um, finding a a workaround. Um, I think just given how complex things are that, yeah, inevitably things aren't going to line up perfectly and that's where you really just have to be able to think on your feet and be really adaptable um, and work as a team to try and work around things. So weather's one example. Sometimes the weather doesn't behave, especially in the Southern Ocean. Um, (laughs) So then it's just a matter of trying to figure out a contingency or um, yeah, just reshuffling things in the schedule to still get the most out of the voyage. Yeah, absolutely. So when you are on one of these trips, Megan, or when you're planning it for other people, how does that work with, I guess you've got this group of people who could be going away for weeks, they could be going away for days. What's the food situation? Yeah, so the catering team do a, an incredible job on the ship because they have to cater for up to 60 people with mm. some with dietary requirements, some for up to 60 days at sea. So, um, yeah, it's mind-boggling how long they can keep fresh food fresh. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so having salads three weeks into a voyage, I don't know how yeah. they manage that, but <laughs> they do. Um, so they've got good food storage systems on board, which really help. But they also yeah do a great job because they're serving three hot meals a day for up to 60 people day in, day out, regardless mm. of what the weather's doing. Um, yeah, they do an amazing job feeding us very well. That's pretty yeah. incredible. <laughs> I reckon people would be pretty interested in what goes on inside of those research vessels. So what about the sleeping arrangements? How does that work? Yeah, so um, there's uh, a number of different berths on the ship. So you can have a single cabin to yourself or you could share a cabin. Um, and we've got cabins on different levels. So we've got a level dedicated to um, science people, a couple of levels dedicated to crew. Um, and yeah, each voyage we, we allocate cabins depending on what people are working on and what shifts people are working on as well, because mm. um, it's important the ship operates 24-7, so people work mm. around the clock non-stop. Um, and we normally have two 12-hour shifts, so 2 a.m. to 2 p.m., 2 p.m. to 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. is how people work. So we try and allocate cabins so that people can each get time in their cabin on the opposite shift and have a bit of privacy and a bit of downtime. Um, yeah, so it's it's a different way of living and working. Yeah, um, wow. It takes a bit of adjustment, but yeah. yeah. When you say people take these shifts and they're working, do you mean on the ship or when you're, you know, you've, I don't know, you're doctored Antarctica and people are getting off the ship and working on the ice, is that? No, just no, on the ship. Just on the ship. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. so once people join the voyage, they'll transition normally into that 12-hour shift, especially yep. our support staff. Um, but it can vary a bit per project as well when they're actually doing their operations too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, awesome. So Megan, are there any difficulties that you've encountered while you've been pursuing a career in science that you'd like to talk about? Um, I guess early on it was probably more, it was such a vast field and I never had a particular career in mind that I knew I wanted to pursue. So. When I graduated from uni, it was really, oh, what now? Like, which area do I go into? Um, But I think the important thing was just meeting people who had experience within fields who were just willing to impart their knowledge and experience Mm. or give advice. Uh, And another part of it was just taking every opportunity, even if it was something I thought, oh, I don't really know if I want to do that, just 
taking it and seeing where it, it led me. Yeah. And through doing that, I figured out what I was actually interested in doing for a career. Yeah. Yeah. Try all the options first. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Try a bit of everything. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And speaking of sort of taking people's advice who are in different areas, what would be your advice to your younger self or to younger mm. people who um, might be looking at a career in science? Yeah, I think early on I just was overwhelmed by the feeling, I don't know anything in this field, mm. like I know so little compared to so many of the other people I met. But I think I'd probably tell myself that that's okay, don't worry about that because everyone starts out somewhere and everyone starts out not knowing anything. Mm-hmm. So even the smartest people you know started not knowing a whole lot. Um, mm. Just probably keep grabbing opportunities and make the most of anyone with experience who's willing to share that. And yeah, you look back in a few years and you'll be amazed at how much you do just naturally absorb through that process. Yeah, absolutely. G'day, it's Costa here. Did you know that when you smell a fragrant flower, you might actually be smelling its reproductive organs and that some plants can be female one day and male the next? And did you also know that plants reproduce from a distance and sometimes use us to do it? Fascinating stuff. This National Science Week, discover what our promiscuous plant friends are getting up to in your backyard. Just Google National Science Week. That idea of um, maybe feeling like you don't know enough, you don't know anything, I think that maybe that does stop a lot of people getting into science, that that sort of, I wasn't good at science at high school, I wasn't mm. good at maths. What, what would you say to people who, or young people in particular, who might be thinking that? They might think, gosh, I love marine science, but mm. I'm not good at maths, I can't do it. What would you say? I think if you're passionate about it, I think you can do anything. I mm-hmm. think... Yeah, if you're genuinely interested in something, you'll work through any kind of barrier to get to that thing. And yeah, it's worth remembering science is such a big field. So just because you don't like one particular aspect of it, it doesn't, shouldn't stop you from pursuing it. Um, I don't like maths at all. Um, and I've just luckily found myself in an area of science where I don't really need to use much maths. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's such a, a vast field. You can find your own little niche in that field. Absolutely. Mm. I totally agree with what you're saying. And if you might not be good at an area, you are entering into this huge scientific sort of community where people have different strengths and people can help you out. If someone's good at one thing, they can help you and you can help other people. It really is a community. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And what about, what do you think you'd say to people who might want a career in science, but not necessarily in a research sort of um, capacity? Yeah, I'd say definitely pursue the or look into the technical roles because they're not as visible and they're probably not the kind of roles you hear about on your careers day at school. Mm -hmm. But there's so many of them, you know, on board the ship we have mechanical technicians, we've got IT people who run the IT systems on the ship, Mm -hmm. Uh, we've got hydrochemists who work on the chemistry part and, yeah, they're all people who love working at sea. Um, So... I'd say, yeah, there's, there's so many roles out there and just, just have a look for them. Um, and, yeah, so, no, there's plenty of roles in those areas. You just probably need to look a little bit harder and, and not think of marine science as only the, the frontline research because that research takes a lot of background work to go into it. Yeah, absolutely. So, Megan, do you think there's a perception about technical staff being one sort of person, perhaps 
a majority a team of men on these research vessels do you think that that's maybe a perception that people have yeah i think i think it is and that perception's probably accurate still in some parts of the maritime mm. industry um but i've been really pleasantly surprised in that onboard investigator often it is a 50 50 split between mm. male and female often there's more females on voyages um so i think that's opened my eyes because growing up I, I had that perception myself i thought oh you know, it's a bit groundbreaking to be a, a woman working in this area, but I've come to realise that there's plenty of women working mm. in this area, um, both as scientists and technical staff. And yeah, that may be different in other areas, but um, on board the ship and the, the kind of projects we get on board, is, it is really even. It's yeah. not weighted too much one way or the other. And the fact that you sort of perhaps had that perception when you were younger that maybe it was a field dominated by, by men, it might be you know, maybe difficult or maybe um, quite unusual for you to get into a field like that. Do you think it's then therefore really important to have mentors like like yourself um, for younger people? Yeah, yeah. definitely. I yeah. think so. I remember when um, early in high school, I really you know thought a lot about studying marine science, but none of my friends were studying that. They were all mm -hmm. going into teaching or something else. And I thought, oh, is this something I can do? But I remember at that stage, um, there were women that I knew who were studying aquaculture and who were studying marine science. And I remember looking at them and thinking, oh, well, if they can do it, then I can do it too. And talking to them about it and getting a realistic viewpoint from them about it. And that was really, really important for me in that early stage when I was teetering a little bit. I knew I wanted to do it, but whether or not I, I could. Um, and I think as well, you know, going to uni, you just meet more and more women in the field and yeah you, you start to realize that it's not unusual and it, it shouldn't be a, a big deal and that's yeah that's been inspiring as well yeah absolutely and what has been one of your um recent favorite moments on one of these voyages make oh um probably my recent one would be the most recent voyage i went on we went um did a transit voyage from brisbane across to darwin and we had about five different projects on that voyage, all looking at completely different things. And I just really enjoyed that voyage because we got to see a bit of coastline I've never seen before. I never thought I would see up through the Torres Strait. Um, and yeah, on that voyage, we had a really interesting mix of people. We had a mix of people from Parks Australia, um, from all different organisations. Again, we had geologists and chemists. And um, it was interesting to see we had both scientists and the people who actually manage those areas and how those two things were brought together uh, so well. And I think that was really good for me to see that there was pretty much the whole picture on a voyage of here's the data we collect and here's the way we're going to use it to actually look after these areas. Oh, that's great. Thank yeah. you so much. So thank you, Megan. Thank you so much for being with us here. And thank you, everyone, for watching. And if you like what you saw, you can follow us at That's What I Call Science on our social media and the Royal Society of Tasmania. Um, and if you're interested in learning a bit more about the RV Investigator, we have some worksheets that will be available during Science Week. Thanks for watching and goodbye. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. 
Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.